Hiya, all you fish enthusiasts, whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week, your audio almanac of all the fish. Monday, December 18th, 2023, and we're on a week-by-week tour of fish across the country with guests from all walks of life. I'm Katrina Liebich with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. And I'm Guy Euron. You might be out there listening to me, heard of C. elegans, but today we're going to be talking about G. elegans. It's the bony tail chub, the last of the Colorado Multipla Triumvirate. Oh my goodness. Okay. We are super pleased to have Zane Olson with our ORA National Fish Hatchery and Chris Smith with our Green River Basin Fish and Wildlife Conservation Office. So welcome to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. So this is another really cool native Colorado fish. We've covered the humpback chub, the razorback sucker, Colorado pike minnow. What does this fish look like and what do its looks tell us about its niche in that really unique Colorado fish community? Some of the morphological traits is they got a big tail fin. It's actually called the caudal fin. It's big like a tuna. They have a streamlined body. They're gray to olive color on their backs. They got silver sides and white bellies. And during their spawn, the females and the males will, they'll get this really orange color on their pectoral and pelvic fins. Beautiful fish during the spawn. And they got that really skinny caudal peduncle. It's much different from like the redonkulous peduncle we heard about with the blue sucker. But what's like, what is that all about? Yeah, so the caudal peduncle, that's the reason for the bony tail name is the caudal peduncle, the section between the body and the caudal fin. It used Historically, it was long and slender like a pencil. Yeah. Looking at photos of large bony tail, larger than we really see today, that caudal peduncle was almost grotesquely skinny, Ooh. like pencil okay. thin. And the larger yeah. the fish get, the more noticeable that seems to be. And what's the max size that bony tails could reach, like their full potential if things were going well for them? We say 24 inches, 22 okay. to 24 inches, but yeah. that has been documented to be some that are bigger. I was surprised that they were yeah. Yeah, potentially that big. That's cool. Historically, they got very, very big probably when there was more habitat connectivity. One thing that's challenging for us field biologists when we catch young, small bony tail, which generally speaking, we don't see them, but even humpback (laughs) chub and round tail chub, the other Gila species that we see up here, it's hard to differentiate between the different species. But the larger they get, the more defined those morphological traits become. Do we know why it's so pencil thin in those larger individuals or what's the function behind that? As far as an adaptive trait, I don't know why. I will say their fins are very falcate. So they have relative to their body size, especially their caudal fin can be really large too. It's thought that their fins and their body shape to a certain extent allow them to hold in high velocity, really strong currents. With bony tail, it's interesting. They do look somewhat similar to a humpback chub, looking at them side by side. But we think that they completed most of their life history, in a lot of cases, in more kind of slow, zero-velocity type habitats like floodplain wetlands. So in a sense, it's kind of interesting to think that they have these features that allow them to hold in strong currents and everything. But yet 
they probably thrived more in, you know, wetlands, ponds. Yeah. And so, but they adapted for a wide variety of conditions. Such a strange cast of characters in the river with how they look. It's really interesting to see how different they are and how they're adapted. Yeah, so differently. That's cool. So these fish are part of the Western chub family. What are some other relatives? Yeah, so... Other members of Gila, as we call them, would be humpback chub, round-tailed chub. And those are two other species that we'll see here in the upper Colorado Basin, as well down in the lower Colorado River Basin. Bony tail, the specific scientific name is Gila elegans, round-tailed chub, which are threatened. They are Gila robusta. And... Mm -hmm. It's interesting. You hold these fish side by side and, and that's, it's apparent. The caudal peduncles fatter. They're just a more kind of stout looking fish. Whereas these bony tail are a little bit more elegant, I guess. You guys have had an episode yeah. about humpback chub. They're very, very unique looking as well. They have this nuchal hump that sometimes almost is inverted, that like overhangs their head. <laughs> very unusual looking fish. How do those three kind of partition out niche-wise? I'm just curious if there's much overlap, if at all. I think of it in terms of habitat utilization. The bony tail, they they seem to really thrive in more wetland pond habitats, whereas humpback chub really do well in more canyon-bound stretches, so possibly swifter currents. And then the round-tail chub, kind of overlaps with humpback chub. We find them more in main channel, river channel type habitats, swifter, little bit swifter currents, steeper stretches. In terms of diet with bony tail, you know, thriving in wetlands, you're you're going to have maybe a little bit less of your caddisflies, more zooplankton, and larger individuals will actually prey on other fish, smaller fish. So you mentioned that you don't run into many juvenile bony tails. I'm curious if you can talk a little bit more about that and some of the threats that they face on the Colorado River. Today, we think the biggest threat in the Colorado River system as it is, which it's changed a lot in the past hundred years or so, we believe that the biggest threat, most immediate threat, I would say, would be non-native fish species. And... You know, that's not unique to bony tail. We have that issue with, we call it survival of young fish, where you'll have larger adults that will reproduce and and they might, you know, produce offspring, but the non-native fish prey on those. And so with bony tail, we believe that they are highly susceptible to non-native predation They're really silvery, and they often kind of school up from what we observe in the hatcheries. A lot of these non-native species, such as a smallmouth bass or a northern pike, they are more adapted toward clear water. So if they could see a prey, like a flashy bony tail, they're going to gobble them up. The other side of it is that those types of habitats that we believe that they prefer and would rather be in like a floodplain wetland, those were the first types of habitats that started disappearing along the Colorado River, even before large dams were built. And this has kind of happened all over the world where human beings move in and they want 
to grow food crops. And so they will drain wetlands and start planting crops and build levees along the river, try to do some level of flood control. If what we believe is true, which we feel pretty confident in, in this, Ponytail are really reliant upon that type of habitat. And between human beings settling along rivers to grow crops and building big dams for flood control, those types of habitats have disappeared. So they were listed in 1980. And at that point in time, there were so few, if any, wild individuals that, you know, were just putting together the pieces after the fact of, you know, trying to recreate and understand what their historic or pre-dam, at least, habitat preferences would have been. One thing I read was some of the last wild fish in the upper basin were caught in a stretch called Cataract Canyon on the Colorado River. And we think that they thrive and, and prefer wetland-type habitats, but we also know that they existed and were captured in swifter at least stretches that were the overall gradient of the river and velocities was higher. So they probably would move around and take advantage of food resources in the main channel as well. But oh. Yeah. Uh, wetlands are really important to fish. And I'm wondering just generally if you could give a few reasons why they're important. Sure. For a lot of these, especially I would say bony tail and razorback sucker, they use those wetlands for nursery habitat. And bony tail will actually, we've seen them spawn this year. Bony tail that were stocked in some of our managed wetlands, actually we call them volunteer spawners. They successfully reproduced and we've caught young of year bony tail in those, in those wetlands. They use those wetlands at least for a nursery habitat because they're very, very productive. So a bony tail, especially young bony tail and razorback suckers, they'll eat a lot of zooplankton and a lot of, of bugs and the wetlands are more productive in general than a main channel of a river. In a sense too, there's kind of a refuge from a lot of the bigger mouths that for a lot of the year would be out in the, in the main, the main rivers. Zane, you've worked a lot with these fish in hatchery systems. I'm curious what kind of the husbandry is like for a bony tail. How do you make sure that you're getting enough genetic diversity when you breed these fish? Uh, how do you go about reintroducing them uh, into the wild? So the bony tail, they love the hatchery. They do really well. They thrive. We do two types of culture. We do intensive fish culture, which is in a re recirculating facility inside. And we do that during the colder months of the years so that we can gain growth throughout the year. Then during the summer months, we put them in the ponds. And that's where the bony tail really thrive. They'll reproduce in the ponds. They grow really well in the ponds. They have all that, that natural feed in the ponds. We also feed them an artificial diet. We have a diet that was developed by Bozeman Technology Center out of Bozeman, Montana called the Razorback Sucker Diet. Hmm. And it's a sinking feed, so they do really well. We've tried a few different things over the years, and we're actually switching over to a catfish diet, which is a floating feed. Oh. And the bony tails seem to thrive off this floating feed that sits up in the ponds. When you feed, the whole pond will erupt with excitement. <laughs> that floating feed sounds nice because you can kind of tell how much they're eating as opposed to when the food's on the bottom, you could get maybe eutrophication or get just 
excess nutrients because you don't know what they're eating. Exactly. Anything that goes at the bottom of the pond is bad. Anything yep. that goes at the bottom decomposes and consumes oxygen. The more feed that we can feed on the surface and get into the fish, the preferable is, is definitely the preferable method. We have 35 ponds here at O'Ray, and we use all 35 ponds every year for production. How big are they? They're 0.5 surface acres and 0.19 surface acres. On the genetic side of it, they captured 11 individuals from Lake Mojave back in the early 80s. And out of those 11 individuals, nine of them were able to reproduce. And those are held at, they, they used to call it Dexter National Fish Hatchery. Now it's called the Southwest Native Aquatic Resources and Recovery Center. And they're the ones that do all the reproduction of the bony tail. They hold the brood source. From there, they do the reproduction every spring and then send all the fry out to the system, mm -hmm. all the other hatcheries to, to raise up and stock. Yeah, so that sounds like quite a genetic bottleneck, almost as thin as that caudal peduncle. One of the challenges. <laughs> okay. Yeah. What uh, what stretches do we still find the bony tail in in the Colorado? In terms of my my work experience is exclusively in the upper basin of the Colorado River, and pretty much entirely in the Green River basin. The Green being the largest tributary of the Colorado. Up here, we will find bony tail essentially where we have stocked them. Zane could speak to this more than I could the stocking locations, but I can overall, we in the different various rivers up here in the main channel, but then we've also stocked bony tail in managed wetlands. And are these wetlands so, adjacent to the rivers or are they kind of disjunct from them? The wetlands that we've stocked bony tail in actually connect to the the Green River during high flows. And are all these fish you're stocking, are they pit tagged or are they radio tagged? Are you doing studies to try and follow their migration, see what habitat they're using? They are all pit tagged going in. Maybe we should define pit tag. That's passive integrated transponder. It's like a, looks like a grain of rice. Could one of you just describe exactly how that tag helps you track where they go? So we do what we call a gastral implant. We put it right behind the pelvic fin, inside the body cavity, in between the layer of muscle and the, the intestines. That pit tag has a unique character, a unique number. And when that pit tag is scanned or is picked up through an antenna on the river that Chris puts out, then we know and we know how to track that individual. Awesome. And where it's come from, where it's go, where it started, and a little bit of history behind it. On the monitoring side of things, we're primarily relying on pit tags. And so we'll set mostly portable antennas in these managed wetlands and kind of keep track, try to get a sense of survival movement. This year, it's interesting, Zane and the Ore Hatchery stocked bony tail in one of our managed wetlands on the Ore National Wildlife Refuge. And this wetland actually has kind of an uncontrolled breach so fish can move between the wetland and the green river and we found that some of these fish stayed in the wetlands some moved out we detected them at other wetlands which we assume they were trying to enter the wetland in high flows if we catch a bony tail because they're rare you can log into the database in real time driving back from the field look up that individual's encounter history 
and let cool. let everybody that was out there know, you know, this fish has been in the river for a couple of years or it was stocked a couple of weeks ago or whatnot. Yeah. But ultimately those pit tags allow us to get a sense of survival of the fish. Again, you know, how long it's been in the river, how much it's moved. That's cool. A useful tool for sure. Zane, I'm I'm curious just if you could walk us through your process, you get a you get your fish from Bozeman, you said, like what is the exact kind of process and then all the way through like putting them in the water? So we bring those fish in from Dexter, New Mexico. We bring them in from them early spring from William Knight. He's a great biologist, the hatchery manager down there. And we bring them in and we put them inside of a few tanks inside the hatchery building. And they arrive only two or three days old. And they're just little tiny, two to three millimeters with eyeballs. Oh, wow. Really small, tiny. tiny, tiny things. And we start them out on, on Artemia, which is a brine shrimp. And after we start them out on brine shrimp for about a, about a week, week and a half, then we start feeding an artificial diet to them. From there, we put them out into our ponds. And our ponds are for life. So we have a great algae bloom. And a great algae bloom produces a great zooplankton population in which the fish or the fry need or require to be able to start developing. Once they're in the ponds for a couple of days, we start feeding an artificial diet, but we notice that they prefer the, the natural feed more. They stay in there until late October, November, depending on weather conditions. And then we bring them into the hatchery building. We feed them throughout the year or throughout the colder months of the year, all the way until April, May, and we put them back into the ponds for one more year. Um, and then we'll bring them back into the hatchery building for an, another cold season. Then we'll pit tag and stock it early spring into the okay. river. And how now, big are they when you actually stock them? What's that size? 250 millimeters is our goal. And how many inches is that for folks listening? That is 250 millimeters is 11.8 inches roughly. Okay. Good size yeah. fish. Cool. They are. Yeah, beautiful yeah. fish. Keep them out of the mouths of those predatory fish when they're small. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like a nice safe place for them in that hatchery for the first couple of years, avoiding all the northern pike and other other species out there. That's cool. Good thing. Yeah. Yeah, they love the hatchery. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You used to work for the state of Utah, I believe. What's the interaction like working with this species and other endangered Colorado fishes between state agencies, federal agencies, and other partners in terms of conservation? Oh, it's been great. So I started my career at the Wallweep State Fish Hatchery down by Page, Arizona. And we partner with the Upper Colorado Recovery Program and raise the bony tail for them. And the coordination between the Colorado program and the state and the federal hatcheries have been great over the years. We talk about stocking. We have a researchers meeting that we put on every spring where we get together and talk about what we've done and the, the successes that we've seen, downfalls that we've seen. So the coordination is one of the greatest aspects of the bony tail and the recovery program. That's awesome. Awesome. Chris, I'm curious if you could give us a little just background on your office and what your role is there in relation to, say, the hatcheries. Yeah, so we are a field office and we are tasked with doing a lot of the native and endangered fish monitoring here in the Green River Basin and as well as non-native fish control. We also work within the Upper Colorado River Recovery Program. So we 
coordinate and collaborate with a lot of different partners, including the Utah Division of Wildlife Resources here in Vernal, and then also their Moab field office, Colorado State University Larval Fish Lab, and Colorado Parks and Wildlife. And so it's a big recovery program with a lot of working parts. There's a lot of territory to cover and a lot of different types of projects going on since we're all working collectively with the four different species. We work at recovery in the Green River and then two of its tributaries, those being the White River and the Yampa River. We do a lot of field surveys via boat and raft electrofishing. And then we also manage these floodplain wetlands on the Ore National Wildlife Refuge as well. It's cool yeah. how when I think of Fish and Wildlife Service, I mean, you've got the land base, the refuges, and then you've got the National Fish Hatchery System. And then we have these field offices and all of them are working together on different facets of conservation. It's always kind of cool to hear what each office is doing. So thank you. Yes. Yeah, you're welcome. It's interesting and rewarding and exciting and great work. Can either of you recall the first time you came across a bony tail and how you felt? How do you feel about this fish, I guess? <laughs> <laughs> well, my first connection was work. When I started as the hatchery manager down at the Wall Weave State Fish Hatchery, that was my first connection. And I've learned to love them over the years. Okay. They've been okay. fun. They're, they're a challenging species to figure out outside of the hatchery system. And so inside the hatchery system, we're changing up production a little bit. We're looking at things a little bit different. So he stops thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of fish into the river with no success. So we're just recently starting to talk about ways that we can do things different. Maybe it's flow training. Maybe it's adding habitat to ponds. Maybe it's the tempering. Many different mm -hmm. aspects to change things up so we can see if we can get survival in the river. That easy, easy mm -hmm. life to the challenging. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. From the Cadillac to the Pinto. My first encounter with a bony tail was at the Ore National Fish Hatchery. I've encountered a, a number of them in the field in the Green River mostly and then also in floodplain wetlands where they've mostly been stocked although some have entered these wetlands on their own when they're connected at high water and like Zane said it's it's really exciting to see them I mean just the fact that they're so rare when we do mm -hmm. actually see them out in the field it's a pretty big deal it's really interesting you know the fact that the hatcheries have stocked so many of these large individuals, but when we go out and monitor them with our standard techniques, whether that's electrofishing or seining or using fike nets, they are known to be pretty good at avoid getting caught. So it's exciting also thinking about how we can improve our efficacy and get better at actually fighting them. And with the pit tag antennas, that's relatively new technology within the past 15 years or so. So we're getting better at figuring out where to deploy those and actually hopefully catch more bony tail. One interesting story from this past summer, Ben Williams, who works at the Ore Fish Hatchery, was out on the Green River. He has his own aluminum flat bottom boat and was out fishing with his daughter and the summer and cast it out and caught a big bony tail. Oh. Yeah. So what do you catch it on? Out there. Yeah. That's so cool. The recovery program's going out electrofishing on a pretty regular basis and we don't see that many, but Ben goes out fishing one day and happens to catch how big was that fish, Zane, you remember? 
He was over 350 millimeters. So yeah, he caught him on a worm. Yeah. They were, they were fishing for catfish. So just bottom fishing and, and caught that thing right above Walker Hollow, which is just below Jensen, Utah. Yeah. Way to go, Ben. That's cool. Yeah. Pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> Coddle, podunk, morphological, coming in with a new band name from Fish of the Week podcast. Ang ang, it's Minute with Maria. I just wanted to show gratitude for every single individual and organization that is putting in the time and the effort into revitalizing the population of this bony-tailed chub that we're hearing about. We need this fish not just for now, but in the future. So thank you to our guests for painting this picture of the Colorado River Basin and all the threats that the bony-tailed and all the other fish face in this region. I really think that beauty and mother nature are some of the most beloved resources and we really need to protect that with all of our might. So let's collectively think seven generations ahead and remember seven generations behind us. Let's fight for what our ancestors wanted for us and for our children to absolutely enjoy. So Kagasikang to our guest and to everyone that doesn't know what Kagasikang means, I've been saying it and if you're listening, it means thank you in Unangam Tunu, which is my language of the Unangak people. The more I listen to Fish of the Week podcast and Guy and Katrina and all of our guests, the more connections I have to the fish, the land, the people near and far. And now Bony Tail Chub holds a special place in my Unangak heart. We do everything we can to prevent non-native fishes from entering the wetland. A lot of times we think of non-native predators like walleye and northern pike and smallmouth bass, but in these wet environments, the biggest impact from non-native fish are small non-native fish like, like red yeah. shiners. Red shiners, yep. We got red shiners, fathead minnows, black bullheads, mm -hmm. and so our hope is that we'll have more success with bony tail survival and potentially and re reproduction and recruitment within these habitats, these wetland ponds that are free from the non-native threat. And so in the lower basin, the lower Colorado River Basin, the, there's a place called the Cibola High Levee Pond on the Cibola National Wildlife Refuge where they have seen consistent reproduction and recruitment and survival of bony tail. And reason being is because non-native fish can't on their own get into this this pond. Any advice for folks in terms of, you know, maybe bait bucket introductions or anything like that? Like, how can people help, if at all? As far as bait bucket introductions, please, please, please just take those fish home with you. The potential impacts of su something that seems relatively minor can be huge and incredibly costly. You might think that, oh, this is going to stay here. It's not that big of a deal. And, you know, we understand the desire to go out and catch your favorite species of fish, but the, the management agencies that stock those species are very careful in what they choose to stock. We spend so much time trying to control these non-native species, and it is so difficult. And in the case of bony tail, case of all of the species that we're working with, if we could remove the non-natives from the picture, we would have a much better chance to recover these amazing species that are very, very unique. And although 
They might not have the interest that other species have or sport fishing species. They are amazing and yeah. and are part of our natural heritage and the landscape. They are very cool. And each place has its own unique native fish. And I, I would love to see, yeah, those fish present for people. I'm sure Ben, who caught one on his worm, could attest to that. It was probably pretty cool to do that. Yeah. Someday <laughs> we all hope that that you could go out and catch a bony tail and target it and try it or a big pike minnow and have sport fisheries for uh, some of these species. At yeah. this point, problematic, but I think being able to get information about them out there to the public, which you guys are doing right now, is hugely important. And just to even see these fish that we work with, they're so unique in appearance. Originally, before I became a fish biologist, I remember seeing photos of these fish and thinking, mm -hmm. man, those look like dinosaurs or something. What are yeah. these things? They're, yeah. so, they're so unique. Is there anywhere folks can see them? Is the hatchery open to the public or are there some spots where folks can see any of these fish that we've talked about in this episode? Absolutely. Yeah. We are open Monday through Friday from eight o'clock until three o'clock. And we love to give tours. Actually, awesome. Ben Williams, who caught the bony tail, he's the most enthusiastic individual I've ever met when it comes to these four species. And he gives the great tour. Oh, okay. So nice. Awesome. And I would like to add to Chris's comment on the public, how the public can help. I would encourage the public that if you are out there fishing like Ben Williams was and you come across the fish that you don't know what it is or whatever, take a quick picture and please put it back. You know, don't throw it on the bank like we used to do in the olden days. Like Chris was saying, these guys, these fish are neat. They have historical value. And I hope one day that our kids will be able to see them and be able to fish for them. So yeah, please put them back. Final question for me. Why should people care about this fish? I think its historical value is the most important. You know, it's unique. We believe that the bony tail evolved three to five million years ago. And here we are in 2023 and we're trying to save these individuals. They just... We don't know where they fit in the niche in our ecosystems. And I want my kids to be able to see them someday and be able to say, hey, you know, dad was part of that. Cool. So, yeah, keep them coming. Keep them going. Yeah, I agree. I think that these fish are an important part of our heritage. I think the power of being able to actually see and know that they still exist is huge. And I don't think that just having stories about them or stories that get lost really is sufficient. I think that the the fact that we have the Endangered Species Act in place to maintain that part of our country's past and have the ability to maintain and have concern for species such as bony tail existing into the future along with us is, I think it it's it speaks to who we are as a society. One thing we didn't mention is that these guys live 50 years. How many fish do we know that live 50 plus years? Well, thank you both so much. This was really cool learning about this fish. Yeah. 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 Thanks. Thanks for inviting us. Thanks for doing this because, you know, so much of our world, we're involved in the technical aspects of our work and everything and just getting the message out to people is as important or more important than anything. So we love hearing from everybody. It's fascinating. We'll get out there and enjoy all the fish, especially the bony tail chub and its pencil peduncle. 
Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebeck, and my co-host is Guy Iro. Our production partner for the series is Citizen Racecar. Produced and story edited by Tasha A.F. Lemley. Production management by Gabriella Montequin. Post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Regional Office of External Affairs. We honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individual tribes, states, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish.